You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hi, I'm your host, Steve Fagee, and the editor-in-chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to After the Pandemic, where we discuss emerging issues in law in a world transformed. What a strange past year it's been. The impact COVID-19 has had on the legal sector is undeniable. And it isn't just that much of the practice of law is taking place remotely and in front of video screens, or that firms and legal departments have been forced to take stock and reconsider space needs, business strategy, and the organization of their workforce. Perhaps just as significantly, if not more, there are growing signs that the regulatory environment governing the delivery of legal services is headed for a sea change. And many of the signs are coming from a group of Western states south of the border. We're talking about Utah, which has created a regulatory legal sandbox to allow people who aren't lawyers to offer certain legal services in a controlled environment. Arizona has bypassed the sandbox model altogether, becoming the first state to change its rules to allow for alternative business structures, something they already have in England and Wales and Australia. California is also studying the sandbox model, and now in Canada, BC has set up its own model. There are even reports that Ontario is looking into it. Anyway, to discuss all of this, and I should say uh, we are recording this in mid-December, just before the break, we have invited legal analyst Jordan Furlong to share his insight. For those of you who don't know Jordan, he is one of the leading analysts of the global legal market. He has written extensively on a range of topics dealing primarily with how law firms and law departments need to prepare for the future of the industry. Many of his writings you can find on his law21.ca blog. More recently, he has taken a somewhat new professional direction, focusing more on access to justice, regulatory reform, and lawyer formation. And he's the author of a very recent report presented to the Law Society of Alberta, offering recommendations on lawyer licensing and competence. Which is why I'm really pleased to have him on the podcast again. My good friend, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Welcome, Jordan. First of all, uh, Jordan, thanks for joining us today to share your insight, which is always very welcome. Eve, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> I'll, I'll kick things off by asking you because uh, you've mentioned this re- recently, and it's uh, so it, it's out there in the public. You were hired this year by the Alberta Law Society mm-hmm. to write a report analyzing issues around articling, legal education, I guess, how to improve the learning environment and make some recommendations to improve lawyer licensing and competence in Alberta mm-hmm. specifically. And now we can talk about your findings, but it's uh, it's definitely an issue that has captured a lot of attention during this pandemic here in Canada, but also definitely in the United States. Mm-hmm. Can we talk generally about this first? What do you think will emerge from all of this? One of the ramifications, Eve, I think, of the fiasco of the uh, <laughs> the utter disaster of barred admission in the United States this year, and if people aren't familiar with it, go on to Twitter and look for the hashtag Barpocalypse. It's like apocalypse, <laughs> but with bar instead of uh. And it will talk about <clears throat> the absolute nuttiness of how American bar examiners have been putting the poor bar applicants this, this year through the ringer. 
First, they said you have to take the test in person during the pandemic, at, during the spring and summer, at the height of a lot of the the, the transmission. And you know, you it's and it's you don't just have to show up in person to do this, but you have to wear a suit. Although one jurisdiction very kindly said, "Oh well, I guess if you're the, the men don't have to wear ties, so you know that that's our concession." And you had to sign a waiver if you were taking this test. You had to sign a waiver. You would not hold the bar examiner reliable if you contracted COVID nineteen and you know died. To the extent that some jurisdictions said, okay, we won't do it in person, we're going to do it online. And they create these draconian conditions under which you have to write it. So you have to sit in your chair in front of your computer for five or six hours at a time. You can't go up to the get a, you, go, you can't go to the bathroom, you can't go out of camera range. I saw this thing on Twitter today where the California bar, bar takers saying, your eyes flicked away from the camera for a few seconds during the, uh, or from the screen for a few seconds, and we're putting you on notice that, you know, you might have cheated. And, and I don't know what has possessed these people to do all these things. And, and the worst of it is, all of this in service of a bar exam that even before this year, many people were saying, this is redundant. This All this does is it retests at three years of law school in the space of a few hours' time. So you have to study things you haven't studied in three years. And you're just retesting law school. You're not assessing fitness to practice. You're not assessing practice abilities or client relations or business acumen or any of the things that people are going to need if they're going to be lawyers serving clients. And, and so it's just brought into sharp relief the absurdity of the system that operates at least in the U.S. and that for many years operated here in Canada. So very quickly, how did we fare here in Canada compared to them? I think we've done significantly better, is my understanding. There are some jurisdictions which don't require any any test like this at all. Uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Nova Scotia are all jurisdictions that are working with CPLED, the Canadian Centre for Professional Legal Education. Uh, CPLED runs the bar admission program for those provinces. And it's all, well, normally it's mostly online with some in-person components. This year, of course, it's been all online, but there's there's modules, online modules for learning about all sorts of different aspects of practice and business. There's a virtual law firm, a simulated law firm where you come online in the morning and you're receiving emails from clients and partners to do this and to do that and carry things out. Extremely hands-on, very collaborative to the extent that you can work with other, because you're, you're, you're put into a group with other bar applicants who are in the same quote-unquote firm. And, and it's just, it's, it's very, it's, it's relatively new, but it's really effective and it's a great way to complement law school, right? The bar admission process should not be repeating law school as it does in the U.S. And, in, in, and even here in Canada, I mean, Ontario has a barrister's exam and a solicitor's exam, and they're very kind of similar, but they shifted online this year, didn't, you know, put uh, bar applicants through the ringer to say, you must do all of these things, so we're ahead on that score. British Columbia has a practical legal training course. They were the pioneers in this area. It's very effective. So I think in Canada, we have fared much better. We have been much more considerate of the our applicants themselves. And we have, I think, taken a better approach to the purpose of this bar admission process, which is to build upon law school rather than to repeat it. So would you say that it seems that Canadian law societies in general seem to be moving on? Or, I mean, how do you explain this in the States? Is it just ingrained in a legal profession culture that things must be as they always have been because that's just the way we do it? Yeah, it's really hard 
to, to come up with a rational explanation for it, right? <laughs> you're digging, you're looking at it really hard thinking, okay, I'm assuming these are all rational actors. What could prompt them to behave in this manner? And, and quite possibly it's, you know, maybe there's a massive wave of irrationality sweeping the United States. This would not perhaps be a surprise <laughs> in, in some respects. <laughs> but but in, the, in the specific context of the, the bar system, there is, from what I understand, a fairly strong sentiment within a lot of experienced lawyers in the U.S., and I suspect this is similar in here in Canada because we have our own version of it here, to say whatever the merits or the demerits of the bar admission uh, process and the bar test, I had to go through it. Therefore, all these young, entitled, lazy, whatever expressions want to give to the young lawyers, they have to go through it too. Right. And, and you see the similar thing here with articling. Lawyers say, well, everybody's got to go through articling. It's a rite of passage. When someone doesn't know why they're doing it, they call it a rite of passage. That is, that, that's like a key giveaway. If someone describes it as a rite of passage, it's like you don't have any idea what purpose this serves to you. Okay. It's the fusion of almost religion and uh, <laughs> professional competence. <laughs> it really, honestly, it really is. It's this act of faith, collective tribal faith. But the other aspect of it, I think, is that because, because they're retesting law school, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, why do they feel they have to do that? And what it suggests at the very least, I don't know if this is how they actually feel about it, but it suggests a huge lack of confidence in American law schools, in American legal, legal education. And generally, there, there's just a, it's kind of a blind spot. I was told when I was researching this project for Alberta that only two jurisdictions in the world do not require a supervised practice element before being called to the bar. In other words, don't require articling or apprenticeship or traineeship or what have you. And that's India and the United States. And there's no real reason why not. It's simply, they, they've never done it that way. And there has never been a sufficient drive up until now to, to, to do things any differently. That's interesting. And that distinction between Canada and the U.S. and the absence of articling. And although now we're talking a little bit about Alberta here, what have you learned from your experience consulting them? What came out of your uh, research and what are some of your findings about the uh, articling process and the licensing process there? Well, you know, it's really interesting because when I was several weeks into the process of, of working on this, I was chatting with the folks at the Law Society and I said, I have to tell you, I think that your approach to to the licensing process, because it's a seed pledge jurisdiction, and your approach to ongoing competence for lawyers are already the best in Canada. You know, that's not to say they can't be improved and enhanced, and, and I made several recommendations as to how they could, but I think your approach is is very sound. And and you've you have been and continue to be pioneers in this area, and and I would not recommend deviating from the path you've set out. What, what is sound about what they do? Well, I, I've talked about CPLAD and why I think that's a really good approach to take. In terms of ongoing competence, Alberta is the only jurisdiction in Canada, indeed it is the only jurisdiction in North America from what I can tell, uh, that does not require for ongoing competence the completion of a minimum number of hours of CLE. And, and to my understanding, I don't think they ever have. I think this has been, you know, ab initio, as you say, the way that it, it has been approached. Because in most places, and, you know, here in Ontario and there in Quebec, my understanding is the same thing, you are required 
to tell the law society, I have carried out a certain number of activities and they amount to this minimum number of, of hours spent doing this. And for the vast majority of lawyers, this is, these are programs, these are CLEs, these are conferences or what have you. And maybe some for some of the more tech savvy ones, it's, you can register and watch something online. If you're more creative, you can come up with, oh, well, I actually wrote all these articles and I did these various activities and so forth. But the whole process is designed to count up to a number. And the funny thing is, right, that it's a minimum number of hours. And find me a lawyer who does more than the minimum number of hours on purpose, right? You don't. It's actually a maximum, right? You you set it as a floor, it becomes a ceiling. The lawyer says, oh, after 25 hours, phew, oh, thank God for that. I'm done. I'm on my CLE now. And the problem with this, as, as was observed by the smartest investigation document of ongoing learning for lawyers, the Legal Education Training Review in England and Wales, is that number of hours is an input measure. It simply says what you did. It does not say anything about what you actually accomplished, what you learned, how you've moved forward. Alberta's approach to, has long been, perhaps has always been, I, I, I don't know the, the complete origins, but their approach has been the first thing you do is you figure out what are your learning needs, right? You, you know yourself best, you're a practicing lawyer, you know your clients, you know your business, you know your whatever. What do you need in over the course of the next year to acquire or to improve in terms of your knowledge, in terms of your skills, in terms of your proficiency in order to be a better lawyer? And that you can define better however you like. You want to be more competitive. You want to be running a more effective practice in terms of efficiency and reducing errors and risks and so forth. If you want to be more knowledgeable, if you want to do any of these things, you figure it out, lawyer, because you know your business best. But when you figure it out where you want to get to, when you figure out what point B is, you know you're at point A, then think about, all right, what do I need to do? What sort of activities should I involve myself in in order to get from point A to point B. And then you sit down, you work through those activities. Say, okay, now I know my activities are going to be to the law society. I'm going to work that on over the, I'm going to work on that over the course of the year. And at the end of the whole process, I start again. And, and this is consistent with how adults learn. This is consistent with how professionals get better at what they do. And, and so one of the things I said to Alberta was do not switch out of that. I, I talked to about two dozen people over the course of developing this report, and everybody who was in the business of professional development to talk to said, do not switch back to minimum number of hours. That's not the way of the future. Yeah, they seem to be putting the onus on some individual responsibility, which I guess is very Albertan in a way. But <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> I think there's also something else going on that I'd like to discuss with you today, which is that mm-hmm. a few years ago, I know the Canadian Bar Association came out with its futures report. We saw ABS and liberalization of the regulatory environment in England and Wales. Mm-hmm. I know there have been little advances here in Canada and at the uh, law society level and discussions around ABS, but I, I think it's fair to say that the overall sense is that things had been moving a little bit slowly. Suddenly, 2020 seems to be at least a very big year mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of the U.S., certainly, or the Western states in the United States, mm-hmm. taking big strides toward a new kind of regulatory model for lawyers. What do you make of all this? Well, it's been an ex- it's really been an extraordinary series of developments. I mean, say what you will about 2020, and there's plenty to say and, and little of it good, but it has been a catalyst for many long overdue developments suddenly bursting into 
into reality. You know, I mean, just to take one example, we have known for years lawyers could work from home and could connect from home and people could connect to court remotely and, and through online. But the culture of the profession, the culture of law firm said, no, 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 it has to be in person. You have to be, you know, wet ink signature and you have to look the person in the eye, all this kind of nonsense. And we figured out, yeah, you know what? You don't have to. You just didn't feel like it. So similarly, I think in 2020, we have seen a, a real catalytic realization that this whole access to justice crisis we've been talking about, this isn't just something that is used to make lawyers feel bad about themselves, which you know has been the case for a long time, and for lawyers to pontificate about and say, oh gosh, if only we had more money for legal aid, we could fix all these problems. I think there's been a realization, no, this is actually an honest-to-God problem. And our Band-Aid approach to this has not worked. Our approach to, say, keep giving money to lawyers to carry out this work stuff, that hasn't worked because people aren't giving us, you know, legal aid programs are in disarray. People aren't giving us money to, to serve clients. We need something different. So Utah and Arizona are the two pioneers at the moment in this area. Utah, among other things, has opened up what it calls a regulatory sandbox. This is a term you're going to hear a lot more about in the months and the years to come. They essentially set up a safe space. They are saying to providers of legal services who are not lawyers, they are saying to companies that provide legal services that are not lawyer-owned law firms, they're saying, you know what, if you tried to, to deliver legal services in our jurisdiction, you would run afoul of our regulations which prevent that kind of a thing. But you know what? We're going to give you a safe space. You're going to come in here. You're going to tell us what your business is, who you're serving, what you're trying to accomplish. We're going to monitor you as you do it. We're going to see, are you effective? Are you reliable? Are you giving good service and experience? And are people getting their money's worth? Are, are you ripping them off? Or are you serving them in good faith and, and giving uh, good outcomes? And if we decide that, yeah, you are reliable and effective and ethical, you're, you can keep doing it. And, and, and this alone, five years ago, this would have been heresy. And in some parts of the U.S. and some many parts of the world, it still is. But it, it makes eminent sense. The whole point of regulation is what is the risk to the consumer? Okay. So how, so how did it come about? Is it, is it just a couple of jurisdictions that are starting to tip the scale or, uh, and that this is creating some momentum of its own? Uh, yeah. I think, I think some people are actually kind of surprised that it has emerged out of the United States. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the Western U.S., and I think it's fair to say that, you know, <laughs> I've used the word pioneer twice already, so I'm reluctant to use it again. But there is something to be said, I think, about maybe some of the, the, the cultural history of a place where it's like, you know what, we're going to make the rules that make sense for us out here. And it is surprising that it comes out of the United States, but a really important point in both Utah, USA, it's like this, regulation of the legal profession rests with the judiciary. It is, it is stationed within the Supreme Court of Utah, Supreme Court of Arizona, and they create task forces and committees, which both states did, and they go, and they go off and they come back and they say, your honors, we think you should do A, B, and C, and their honors say, okay, sounds good, let's do it. And, and there's no, like in here in Canada, this is so weird for us. We're like, that's, we don't, judges have no role in the, the, the regulation of legal services or the governance of lawyers, except in the most, you know, remote sense. It's entirely lawyer driven. So we, we talk about lawyer self-regulation, but this is actually the case in Canada, pretty much in every single jurisdiction. But in many parts of the United States, it's judicial regulation of the legal profession, which is only self-regulation in the broadest sense of, of, the, of the term possible. So Utah said, we're going to do a sandbox. Arizona said, 
we're going to, they haven't done it yet, they're in the process of getting the mechanics to make it happen, we're going to essentially throw out what's known as Rule 5.4 in the ABA Model Rules of Conduct, which essentially says lawyers may not share fees with non-lawyers, lawyers may not own a law firm in common with non-lawyers, and some other uh, related aspects to it. But essentially, it is the uh, barrier that has always prevented outside equity, outside investment uh, into the legal services environment, into into law firms. And Arizona says, you know what? What we've been doing hasn't been working. What we've been doing seems to have been making the problem steadily worse at an accelerating rate. So we're going to do something radical. We're going to try something different. And this is what they're going to do. And, and and I cannot wait to see what both of these jurisdictions are going to come, come up with, especially because the uh, the, 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 the landslide waiting to happen is the fact that Arizona and Utah are so awful close to California. And California, almost this time last year, was very close to recommending its own sandbox. And they got cold feet there, and there was a lot of political influence and whatever. Who knows what was going on? But uh, California kind of pulled back a little bit, and they told a task force to go away and think about whether they should consider a sandbox. And hopefully they'll be bringing their own report back fairly soon. But the fact that Utah and Arizona have, have made these moves, I would like to think, makes it easier for California to say, okay, we'll try this. And I think if California rolls over, uh, then I think you're going to see a domino effect across the U.S. And you're already seeing noises about this in Illinois, in New York State. These are two of the most conservative jurisdictions in the United States when it comes to legal services regulation. So I think the U.S., remarkably enough, might just end up being uh, a, a hotbed of regulatory innovation over the next couple of years, which would be the coolest thing ever. And what does it mean also from then uh, an industry, legal industry Point of view, and what I'm getting at here is, I noticed that uh, Rocket Lawyer, for example, which is an mm-hmm. online legal services outfit, has decided that it's going to try out its products in in Utah, mm-hmm. in Arizona as well. Meanwhile, we hear, we keep on hearing these stories about the big four accountancies mm-hmm. snapping up law firms. Okay, it might be in uh, over in England and whatnot, but do you think that they're they might be preparing themselves for a, a very different regulatory landscape? In the States? I think there's two really interesting, separate but related and parallel things going on here. With regard to Rocket Lawyer and and its close cousin Legal Zoom, which essentially comes to the same thing. These are companies that are in the business of providing very straightforward legal services, basic legal documentation, the most straightforward of, of, of steps, the kind of stuff that you would feel confident that a first-year lawyer could pull off without getting sued or, or, or causing causing a problem. But at the same time, these are services that are still out of reach of the vast majority of people who want them for a bunch of reasons. And the main one is price, is that, number one, lawyers either charge a fair amount of money for these kind of services or, as often as not, they, they, don't, they don't really charge for anything. They don't even do this kind of work because it just doesn't pay enough for them to do it, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're a lawyer, you, for, for whatever reason... And we can talk about costs versus revenue expectations and so forth, but lawyers tend to set a pretty high floor in terms of the profitability and revenue generation capacity of the kind of work they're going to do. The problem comes when that same lawyer takes off the lawyer hat, puts on the regulator hat and says, and nobody else can offer it either. Nobody else can offer this thing for 75 bucks an hour, which is what it's actually worth. I think that what we're going to see 
or what we could very well see if the raw lawyers and the legal zooms and similar businesses, probably much bigger businesses, get into this line of work. If we start seeing, as I hope we will, broad public provision, uh, the, the establishment of almost like uh, basic legal services as a public utility, which that's probably several years off, but we can hope. What we're going to see, I think, is a market correction. We're going to start seeing people able to access straightforward legal services at a price point that makes sense to them, that reflects the value of what they're producing, and it's going to push lawyers higher up into the market where they belong anyway. This, this is my thing. But you go back 50 years, lawyers did everything because lawyers had to do everything. We didn't have machines. We didn't have computers. We, you know, we, we had very basic, very basic legal education compared to what we have now. Um, and there wasn't, there wasn't really anybody else except lawyers. The, the, the entire supply side of the legal marketplace was a big group of people with a big sign saying, lawyers, okay? And that's not the case anymore. It's 2020. We have paralegals. We have paraprofessionals. We have family law services uh, technicians. We have co computers. We have software. We have systems. We have uh, outsourced legal services. We have alternative legal services providers. We have law companies. We have this whole diverse array of providers on the supply side, and they're all saying, we can do this stuff too, and we can do it reliably and ethically, and we can do it at a price point that makes sense. And that's what's new that's what's not even new anymore, frankly. It's several years old now. And, and it's what the legal services regulation system hasn't yet come to grips with, and which I think we're starting to see right now with the slow realization that the point here is not to make sure only lawyers can provide legal services. The point is to make sure that anybody who provides a legal service, a legal remedy, a legal solution can do so reliably, effectively, and ethically. If they can do that, who cares if they're a lawyer, if they're a non-lawyer, if they're a Martian? It doesn't matter. So Canada, it's often said, likes to be third on, <laughs> in, trying, <laughs> in trying new things. We've had Australia go down this road. We've had England and Wales go down this road. The United States is going down this road. We're, dangerous, we're dangerously flirting with fourth. <laughs> but what do you make of all this discussion here? Are we beginning to see some movement? We have seen some movement in British Columbia, namely, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. recently, like I would say more significant than what we've seen over the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're, you're exactly right. British Columbia is leading the way here. BC is now our own legal laboratory, as far as I'm concerned, in Canada. And that is not to say other jurisdictions have not been taking steps of their own in measured, various measured ways. But British Columbia has, in fact, authorized quite recently the development of its own sandbox, exactly, exactly along the lines, or pretty close along the lines, of what Utah is doing. If anything, BC's approach is even more interesting. Okay, so so BC Law Society, Law Society has all these task forces, and they're digging away and they're coming up with, okay, how can we solve access to justice? How can we do a better job of this? And one committee was looking specifically at this idea of, you know, can we, should we, how would we carve out a, a, a particular kind of subspecialty, uh, a lawyer technician who can do all these sorts of things. And the model was the Limited Licensed Legal Technician, LLLT, in Washington State, which was almost 10 years old when Washington State Supreme Court shut it down earlier this year for a bunch of reasons. That's a separate story. But they were thinking about, essentially, how do we do this in a top-down manner? We're the lawyers. We're the regulators. We're going to carve out a little piece of our monopoly and give it to these people and say, you go and run with this. 
And to their full credit, the people in the task force said, no, that's not the right approach. The right approach is not top down, it's bottom up, it's grassroots. So they went, and, and this is the approach it's going to be, and, it's, and this is similar again to uh, in a way of what Utah is doing. They're going to say, you know what, let's go ask the market. Let's go ask the market what they need. And so the idea is you go out to potential providers, same as in Utah, and say, do you have a service or a product that you would like to offer to the people of British Columbia and to the business of British Columbia, but that you do not do because we have regulations here that prevent you and will come down on you like a ton of bricks if you do. And if that does describe you, come on in, you show us, right? We're, we don't know this stuff. This isn't our specialty. This isn't our area, but it is yours. You tell us what you've got in mind. We'll take a look. If we think it deserves uh, a chance, then we will give you a chance and we'll let you sh show what you can do and let the market demonstrate, right? So it could be, right? Someone comes in and says, I got a great idea and it's fantastic. And they look at it and says, yeah, you're a, no, you're, you're a complete fly-by-night shyster. Goodbye to you. Off you go. And someone else comes in and says, hey, I've got this great idea and it's going to work really well. And look at them and say, well, you're, you're smart, you're sensible, you're strong, you've got a good ethical backing, we like you. Sure, give it a shot. And they try it for a year and nobody buys it, right? Can, like no take up whatsoever. And it's like, oh, well, you tried, good on you, you know, it's worth a shot um, and what have you. But then what's going to happen is someone's going to come in who is ethical, who is sensible, who is well-grounded, and they're going to offer something and people are going to say, I could use that. And I will pay for that. And I will tell my friends and my family about that. And they will start to use it. And I think that's the right approach that BC is taking. And BC is doing a lot of really interesting stuff across the board. But in the one area of regulatory reform, they are opening the door that I think other provinces and territories in Canada should open the door to as well. Because again, it is fundamentally risk-focused and it's consumer-focused. And I think that's how you regulate. When the idea about these behind these regulatory sandboxes is to give legal companies, law firms, the tools that they need to to innovate and to develop new new suites of legal services. Mm -hmm. Having said that, we just went through again the pandemic, and uh, or we're still going through this pandemic. <laughs> I think I'm calling this one uh, done a little <laughs> a little too soon. But in your estimation, how's the here in Canada? How's the uh, the legal industry responded in, in terms of adapting to this? And you know, maybe compared to me, compared for me to the to the response to the 2008 financial crisis, where the firms had to cut costs, rein things in. How did you know? I think there were concerns after 2008 that they'd already cut a lot of the fat out of their operations. So. Did anything surprise you about how they've withstood this particular challenge? Yeah, nothing has nothing has surprised me too much, either positively or negatively. I think that law firms, generally speaking, in Canada, and of course, this obviously it's a big country. There's lots of different types of law firms. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, but I think generally speaking, they have managed it reasonably well. They were worried, they were scared, as we all were back in the spring. Okay, lockdown, shutdown, suspend, uh, partner draws, do whatever we need. This could be brutal. And over the course of time, this sort of a number of them found, okay, well, this isn't as bad as we hoped, or we can we can manage or we can pull it off. And and there's been a, a certain amount of okay, easing off a little bit. So I, I don't think that the pandemic has caused any more than a, a slight rise in law firm shutdowns. Not no major or even mid-size or regional law firms, to my knowledge, have 
have have shut down or, or suffered uh, considerably. I think I think law firms of various sizes that were already on the edge or teetering or were coming close to the end of their natural life, this probably accelerated or pushed them over a little bit. But I think for the most part, we we've learned we we have learned from the lessons of the past. We learn don't fire everybody because you're going to have this massive gap in in people uh, going forward. I think the other thing too is law firms have also the one thing about these crises, and this was the case 2008, 2009, was also the case if you go back to the dot com crash to the extent that firms were involved in that as well. But law firms keep figuring out the hard way, but they keep figuring out you know what we can actually keep doing a lot of things that we're doing but spend less money, pay fewer people, and reduce our costs doing it. When they cut like that, what does it mean for them, for their way of running business? Yeah, well, I think what you're seeing is a greater willingness to invest in technology as a means of producing legal outcomes and producing legal work. And that is something law firms have always dragged their heels on for a whole bunch of reasons, but there's more willingness to do this now. I don't have stats for Canada, but in the U.S., AMLA 100 law firms, 100 large, well, 100 most profitable law firms, according to self-reporting statistics, take that for what it's worth. A third of them now have their own captive alternative legal service provider, their own captive law company. Um, and that could be an e-discovery. It could be in document review and due diligence and contract drafting and technology and, and all, the, all these sorts of things. And, and that's great, right? I think it's terrific because as firms realizing – you know, the and this goes back to the point about market correction. There's a lot of work now that has been reduced below the threshold that we can give it to a human lawyer and say, bill it out at the amount of money it takes to sustain you in a profitable, man, profitable manner for us. So a lot of work's fallen below that threshold. We don't want to give it away. We don't want to lose it. Let's create systems and software here so we can keep that and capture that. I think that's been a really interesting development, certainly in the U.S., as I say, I don't know to the extent which Canadian firms have followed suit on that, but it wouldn't mm. surprise me if at least a few of them uh, are doing exactly that. I think it's this recognition that uh, the, import, the increasing importance of technology. I've heard from a few people now, especially in the business of, of leases and commercial real estate for law firms, and they've all been making a really interesting projection, which is that from this point onwards, we're going to see and I, I don't know. I don't know when the the switch will take place. Probably it'll in a median level, maybe in about a couple of years. Couldn't maybe not that long. He said we're going to see technology overtake real estate as the second largest expense law firms have, or the very least, it's going to move up into the top two along with salaries and 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 partner draws and so forth. Because as we all know, for the longest longest time, the vast majority of law firm costs were uh, in whatever order. They come in, the physical premises that you lease, and the money you pay to your people to make it happen, to make everything happen. And we can have an argument about whether or not partner draws count as, uh, as is that a distribution of profit or is the payment of income? I don't really care that much. The idea is some of the money that you make, you give to a human being in exchange for the work that they did, Okay. Um, and those have been the top two for the longest time. And the prediction in the industry I'm seeing, which makes perfect sense to me, is that the lease costs, the physical presence costs are going to shrink and the technology costs, or at least the investment, are going to go up. And I think that is maybe the most important impact that this crisis is going to accelerate. Again, this, this was a nascent trend anyway, but it's going to accelerate it. It's going to push it forward. I think it's going to have an impact on law firms over the course of the coming decade. 
And so that's going to have, so that, that would presumably also have an impact on uh, how, you know, the workplace in law firms is organized. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm presuming what that means too, is that they're going to be cutting down on office space and, uh, and overhead uh, yeah. at, at the, uh, for the benefit of investments in technology. Yeah, I, I tend to think so. Or at the very, you know, I mean, I, I suspect that there's, there's not going to be that many firms whose leases are coming up right now saying, I think we need a, a, another 10, 20, 30% more space than we had before. I think if anything, it's likely to see the opposite. Um, I think you're going to see more people, a certain percentage of uh, partners, a certain percentage of associates are going to say, I would rather work from home than come into the office, or I would rather work remotely. Even if it's like two days a week, three days a week, that else, that in itself would have a significant impact. It is likely that partners would do this. Associates want to be in the office because they want to be around partners. That's how you make it. That's how you get the work. That's how you build the networks. That's how you grow your own power base and your and your own uh, status within the firm. You find partners and you work closely with them. But if the partners aren't there, then what's the point of the associates being there? You're not going to get you know uh, hang out with each other. Isn't all that big of a thrill? So, so yeah, it is going to. Uh, it, it, I think you're going to see physical footprints either shrink or perhaps see them change. So uh, space that used to be exclusively given over to offices, perhaps it gets converted into very high-tech meeting space where you can meet remotely or in person with clients or with other firms or with other people. You've got collaborative workspaces because there are some types of work that lawyers still need to get together if you doing trial prep and if you're working on a major deal and everybody needs to be in the same room talking to each other looking at each other okay you need space for that but you also need space to train your new people right and and uh, this is a separate conversation but law firms have to take the training of their, their 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 young lawyers increasingly seriously but what i think this really points us towards and this is where i'm going to come back to a question you asked me earlier that i didn't answer it's going to point us towards the gradual movement of law firms away from a place where lawyers come all the time and build their time and effort for the benefit of clients. And there'll still be elements of that. We're going to see them move morph more into, we are legal solutions businesses. We have a portfolio of ways in which we can provide solutions to our clients. Part of that portfolio is, here's a whole bunch of really experienced, brilliant partners. Part of that portfolio is, here's some hardworking, eager to learn young associates. Part of the portfolio is, here's all these paralegals and paraprofessionals and legal technicians. Part of the portfolio is, here's all this technology and software and systems that can do all these sorts of things. And in that way, they're going to start resembling the big four. Because this is because the big four aren't accounting firms. They haven't been for ages. They are mm-hmm. business they are business consulting firms, but they are essentially business solutions firms. And, and that's how they sell themselves. And if you are your average, say, large client, and all the things being equal, which they aren't, but if, if you go to a law firm and say, what do you got for me? The law firm says, we have lawyers. We got lots of them, and they're really cool, and they're brilliant, and they're awesome. And if you're not sure, just ask them. They'll tell you. And they said, that's great. Thanks. Got it. You got brilliant lawyers. Love it. Accounting firm, big four, what do you got? We got the whole Sweet. We got a spectrum of solutions, right? We're not one size fits all. We are whatever you need for your particular solutions, your particular problems. We will pick and choose. We can provide you the combination that you need. And that has always, I think, been the major advantage in a business sense that the big four have had over large law firms. I think large law firms, maybe not intentionally because, you know, heaven forbid a, a, a lawyer has anything to learn from an accountant, but I think unintentionally they are heading in that same direction towards a portfolio of providers 
at different levels of sophistication, different levels of cost. I think that's where we're heading. And so just to bring it back uh, full circle to what we were discussing earlier, it's interesting because you know it sounds like what you're saying is that there is going to be an imperative on law firms to invest in updating, modernizing their business processes, their use of technology, their incorporation of technology into their legal services delivery. That takes money. Uh, That takes money and that takes investment. And I guess the question is going to, does the question then become, where do they get that money? And how do they tap into that money? And does that then lead to the next question that is we actually need regulatory reform to move ahead. Well, you know what? It's funny because that is exactly the, the the prediction I made. And this is at least three, four years ago now, maybe longer. I have to go back and find the blog post. But I was well, one of the things I said was, you know who is going to tear down the walls against non-lawyer investment law firms? It's going to be the lawyers. It's going to be the law firms because they're going to realize they're being outgunned. They're being massively outspent by all these other providers, and they're going to say, why can't we get access to some of that? Oh, that's right, because we're not allowed to have people who aren't lawyers in the equity circle. And they're going to say, we are at a massive competitive disadvantage, and we don't like that. And I think that's what's, that's one of the things that's going to drive it forward. You're going to see law firms and lawyers and those law firms themselves saying, let's be realistic about this. Let's grow up. It's the 21st century, and maybe just maybe the presence of capital from someone who doesn't have a JD or an LLB isn't in fact the fruit of the poison tree and is not going to destroy the whole operation. I don't mean to minimize the importance of ethical concerns and ethical issues. Of course, they're important, but there has been this assumption that, and this, and this is actually built into, this is a core regulatory assumption of the legal profession. If we can just keep the non-lawyers out, we'll be fine, right? It's bringing the non-lawyers in that ruins everything. Right, because we can't trust them as much as we trust lawyers. They're not as good as we are. They're not as ethical as we are. They don't care as much as we do. That this, you know, that is that is a clear, fundamental presumption built into how we regulate. We don't let people who aren't lawyers run law firms or be part of law firms or share fees with lawyers. Means that fundamentally we don't trust them. We think they carry a disease of some kind and they're contagious. And right. And, and, and this is what I mean when I say grow up. I mean, come on. So fundamentally for me, this is an opportunity for the legal profession to look around and understand the legal sector is bigger than us. There's more going on here than just lawyers. And we don't have to like that. We can hide our eyes from it all and say, no, 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 it's not actually happening. But it is happening. We are part of a large sector of legal service solution uh, acquisition and delivery. What's our role going to be? How will we conduct ourselves? How are we going to relate to our clients? How are we going to relate to the other providers in this market? And how are we going to use the tools, best tools available to us? I don't just mean technology. I mean business processes. I mean uh, training. I mean regulation, right? It's It astonishes me that to this day, most parts of the legal profession around the world, we don't have entity regulation. We regulate the individual lawyers. We do not regulate the enterprises in which they operate, right? That's, again, that's a whole separate uh, conversation. But it's this kind of delayed learning curve we've been on for a long time that I think is going to snap forward. I think we're going to see more progress 
and reformation and and in enhancement and improvement in legal regulation over the next 10 years than we saw in the last 100. I think it's going to be a huge decade in that regard. On that note, I'm going to end the interview. Thank you, Jordan, very much for joining us and for sharing your wonderful insights once again. And happy, happy 2021 to you and your family. Thank you, Eve. Right back to you as well. Well, on that note, sadly, we have to end the interview. Thank you so much, Jordan, for sharing your wonderful insight with our audience once again, and happy 2021 to you and your family. I've been talking with the legal analyst, Jordan Furlong. You can follow him at law21.ca and on Twitter at Jordan underscore law21. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and to hear some French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if, if you have any comments, feedbacks, and suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. And check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. A big, big thank you to our podcast editor, Anne-Catherine Desulmets. And thank you all for listening to this month's episode of After the Pandemic. We'll catch you next month.